You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. But we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, I come with no great wisdom. I come with uh, nothing but this uh, blessed book. And uh, that is my goal is not to say anything other than what our God has already said in his inspired word. And so I want you to be able to look down and say, there it is. That's what he said. And that's because that's what the Lord said. And uh, that we would come together um, to, to learn in, in bowing before uh, God's word together. So uh, James chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 13 to 20. And uh, this is the last verses in the book of James. It's kind of bittersweet to finish off a, a book. We, we spent the last seven months learning from James uh, over uh, 19 sermons through these five chapters. We have mined uh, precious jewels out of this text, and, uh, and today is the last. It's kind of hard to say goodbye. And yet, I love the fact that as a church family, um, we, have this, uh, we have this accomplishment that we've kind of walked through this together. Um, we have studied the book of James. We've grappled with its hard texts. We have looked at the, the things that challenge us. We've been blessed by its richness and convicted and encouraged, and I pray uh, conform more to the image of Christ as we've studied his word together. And uh, for those of you who've been around here from the beginning, um, you can look back the same way on the book of Acts, the book of Ephesians, the book of Exodus, uh, Philippians, Habakkuk, James, uh, and uh, what a great thing that is. And, and uh, the Lord is willing and does not Return, oh please Lord, just come back. Um, but we'll be heading next into Colossians and just excited for what uh, God has for us there, looking at the new life that we have in Christ and what that means. Just a, a beautiful, um, great book. So excited about it. So take some time, uh, maybe read through Colossians uh, like six times before Easter and, uh, and you'll have this bit of a, a picture of where we're going. Um, but this last passage in the book of James uh, is an interesting one. Um, I was asked a couple months ago, um, somebody called me and, and said, what do you guys do with this? Do, do you do this? I'm looking at verses 13 and 14 and the, the prayer for the sick, the anointing with oil. Um, and my short answer is yes, absolutely. Now, it just so happens in our short life as a church, um, we've not been asked to do this yet. Um, I hope today this changes. But uh, I've done it before, did it with the elders in uh, Redemption Church Calgary when I was there. I've done it at churches I was at previously. Uh, and, and yet, I have to admit, um, this passage has always had a certain amount of mystery for me. Uh, I've never felt that I've been able to really grasp it, um, really understand it. I've, I've read it countless times. I've heard sermons on it, but just never felt settled. And, uh, and so even on that phone call a couple months ago, um, I just kind of had to say, I'm looking forward to March when we get to this text. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to take some time and really drill down and understand it. And I have to say, it did not disappoint. 
Um, the deeper I look into this passage, what I found uh, is that this is, this is a beautiful gift to the church. This is, this is an amazing, um, rich, and beautiful text. And so um, I'm excited for what the Lord has for us today. Um, the book of James, you'll notice, doesn't really have a conclusion. He doesn't have kind of the greetings at the end or any kind of, you know, formal wrap-up. He, he just drops these last verses, 13 through 20, and, uh, and, and yet what he gives us there um, is help. He, he gives us practical, real-life help. This is like his final prescription for a healthy church, and uh, he gives us three things that we ought to be doing. Here's how to be a healthy church, and the kind of church I think that can, can read through the book of James with all of its warnings against uh, inauthentic faith and, and stand in humble confidence before the Lord. So these are, I think, transforming verses, verses that, uh, that have some really, I would say, some of the key principles, um, some of the core things of really why we even planted a church here in the first place. These are some of the, some of the things that we are really after. Um, so much in this passage, I, I pray, will, will catch your heart. Um, if you're new to redemption, um, this is a great little overview. You get, to, uh, you get to look and see, okay, that's what this church is about. And if you've been here for a while, I hope this will be like uh, a booster shot for you. Oh, yeah, I remember those. I remember talking about this. This is significant. So um, let me read it for us. Um, James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of James that has so blessed us and challenged us. God, we ask one more time from its pages um, that you would be at work in our hearts. God, that you would speak to us, that we would hear what we need to hear this morning from your word. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be um, convicting us, would be strengthening us. Lord, I pray that, um, that my words would be faithful to your truth. God, if there's anything that I have to say that is not true to your word, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But God, that your word would go forward and that you would be faithful as you have promised, um, that it would not go out and return void, but it would accomplish what you have set out for it to do. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. So the first step in having a healthy church, um, James says, this is how you get healthy. We need to, to get healthy. That, that's what I think verses 13 to 15 are about. 
How do you get healthy? Now, you might be looking um, specifically at verse 14 and thinking, John, I, I, I assumed when you said a healthy church that you were not thinking um, physically healthy. That, that's like we use that term spiritually healthy. Um, does that fit with this text? Actually, uh, I think that's one of the keys to understanding this. Um, contrary to popular usage, I, I don't think this text, verses kind of 13 to 15, are primarily about physical sickness and healing. And, and if you're like me, that might come as a bit of a surprise. That's what it meant all growing up. Um, that's how it's, I've seen it used. And, and so th- these verses are often applied to people with you know, chronic pain or cancer or disease um, coming to the elders to be prayed for, for for physical healing. And so this might be a bit of a shift for you. Um, let me just say two things about that quickly. Um, the first is, don't feel like you need to walk out of here with a, with a concrete, nailed-down, hard-and-fast position on this. Um, certainly don't feel like you need to, to have all of your questions answered. Um, it's okay. It's okay to say, yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm thinking about that. Uh, I don't know where I land on that. Um, good Bible interpretation takes humility. If you never read the Bible and have it change your opinion about itself... Um, you, you need to start over. The Bible should be correcting us, and so we need to look at it faithfully and carefully. And, and, and that takes time. Um, I have read this passage I don't know how many times. I've heard sermons on it. I've been wrestling with this passage for, for 15 years. And, uh, and that's okay. It's okay. Actually, it's even okay if we come to land on different positions and disagree over this. So let me lead you through how I came to the conclusion I came to. Um, I guess the second thing I would say is uh, just hear me out to the end. Um, Because this will apply to those who are sick, just maybe not quite the same way that that we originally thought. So, so let, me, let me walk through this, kind of stick with me. We're going we're gonna to get kind of nitty-gritty, expositional here. How do we understand this text? How do we break it down? Uh, and the first thing, um, when James, James asks in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Um, we need to understand that word that he uses there is pretty flexible. It's not clear that it's physical illness. It, it can mean ill or weak or feeble tired. Um, it's often translated um, to mean physically sick. That's how Jesus, or it's used through the Gospels, as Jesus is healing the sick. Those are obviously physical sick, and that's the word that's used there. Um, but Paul also uses it a number of times to speak to those who are weak in faith, those who are, are faltering and, 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 and feeble in their faith. And, and so it's used both ways. The question we have is, which way does James intend it? What is he trying to say? And, and as always, the first thing you want to look at is the context, right? The, the context of what, where that word is used is always primary. Um, and if we just start with the context of the book of James, um, the book of James is, is all about addressing our spiritual health from start to finish. Does your faith bear fruit? Do you have authentic faith, true faith, healthy, living, active faith? Do you live in a way that is, that is evident of ongoing humility before the Lord? And so this letter has been consistently looking at, at spiritual health. Um, if we come to a little bit more of the closer immediate context, um, chapter 5. right? He began um, with this condemnation against the wicked rich and, and how they will be judged. Um, he's talking about 
how a true, healthy faith responds to persecution. As, as humble Christians, particularly in that culture, they were subject to being defrauded and taken advantage of and bowled over by these, these wicked, wealthy people. And, and so he's laying out for them, don't worry, they will be judged. Don't lose heart. Christ is still on his throne. They, they will get their judgment. And then verses 7 to 11, he continues on that theme. He calls them to patience. He calls them to a life of peace in the midst of the trial. This is how to remain steadfast, bearing up, holding fast. Be, be strong through the suffering that you're facing. Don't, don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. And then these last verses that we're looking at today are his conclusion, his final word to the church. It makes a lot of sense to me that he would be kind of wrapping up his thoughts on spiritual health. He's, he's bringing together everything that he's been talking about and bringing this application. On the contrary, it would seem very odd to me if just now, out of the blue, he were to pivot and talk about physical health for the first time. Um, and then, looking at kind of the close context, he goes back again immediately, um, at very least in verses 19 and 20, to certainly speak of those who were uh, wandering in their spiritual health. So it's surrounded by this context of spiritual health, not physical. Now that's not in itself uh, determinative. That's not the end of the story, um, but it begins to lead us a certain direction. And with that in mind, let's zoom in and look at the passage itself. Does do these words uh, allow for that in verses uh, 13 to 15? And I think as we look at it in the English, uh, the words there that the English translators use, I don't think they're wrong by any means, but I do think they're misleading, certainly if we're already starting with the presupposition of, of physical health. Um, but from the start, you'll, you'll see in, in, in James uh, 5.13, um, he begins addressing these three categories, right? Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone sick? And, and it seems to me he's, those are the first two are build up. He wants to get to the third one. That's the one that he then expounds on. And, and so those first two words, I think, give us important context. The word suffering there in verse 13 um, it is clearly not physical suffering. I mean, James's word doesn't fit there. The word is kakopathai. Um, kako, uh, as you might imagine, means bad, not good, unhealthy. Um, was an easy one to remember in Greek class. Kaka, bad. Um, pathai is the other half of that word. Uh, that speaks of pathos, the emotion, the spirit, the heart, the passion. So, so he's saying, is, is anyone struggling with, with bad passion, with unhealthy heart? You're wrestling in your spirit. That person should pray. On the other hand, then he says, is anyone a cheerful person? Well, that in the English comes through. That's about the, the heart again. The word there is euthumai. Um, you is, is good, happy, healthy. Um, that's where we get our word. I guess that's maybe not as helpful as I thought. Euangelion, the gospel, is the good news. It's, it's good. And then thumai is the will. It's the desires, the heart again. So does anyone have a, a good heart? Are you, are you standing firm and, 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 and excited and, 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 and happy? Then sing praise. So you see him building this up. Does anyone have a bad heart he should praise? Anyone has a good heart he should praise? And then is anyone weak or unhealthy, feeble, not strong? And again, I think it would be very odd for him to use two words about the heart and then switch to 
physical illness. That, that doesn't fit in my mind. I don't think it follows the other two. So I don't think this passage is about physical sickness or physical healing. I think he's, he's walking us through this progression. Um, is anyone struggling? They should pray. Is anyone doing well? They should praise God. Is anybody weak? Is anyone really beat down? Then you should get the elders. It's about those who are, who are weak in heart, whose faith has grown weary, who are burdened and overwhelmed in the soul, who are spiritually feeling like they just can't go on. Now, to be clear, I think we should pray for physical healing. I think there are other places in Scripture we can go to see that. There's nothing wrong with that. I just don't think that's what this passage is primarily speaking about. And I think this understanding fits well with, with the rest of Scripture. I mean, yes, God, God cares about your physical suffering. That matters to him. But that's not his primary concern, right? That's hard for us to wrap our minds around in this kind of physical world, in these physical bodies, but that's not his primary concern. Think of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul prayed for healing from this thorn in the flesh. Seems to be some kind of physical suffering that he had. He prayed three times. He begged the Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God declined. God said, no. No, I'm not going to heal you. But instead, the Lord gave him grace. He strengthened him spiritually. The Lord said to him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul, in the end then, says, no, I will boast in my weakness of my flesh that humbles me and crushes me because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Because then I learned to cling to Christ and walk with him. There was a, a greater outcome the Lord had in mind rather than just physical healing. That physical witness, weakness became the glory of Christ in Paul. So as a pastor, um, I see this so often, both sides. People who suffer deeply with physical pain and illness, and through it, they learn to cling to Christ. They learn to rest on him. They, they learn to cut those ties of the heart that, that hold so firmly to the things of this world, and they thrive in their faith. Their greatest need. Even if they've desperately pleaded for healing, their greatest need is not physical healing. Physical healing, in many cases, would have robbed them from a much greater, more beautiful goal, a more eternal goal, the, the glory of God in their, in their sanctification. On the contrary, there are those who are just physically fit, strong as an ox, ready to go, healthy as can be, and their spirit is broken. Their faith is frail and faltering. They're burdened by, by sin or, or anxiety or doubt, and it brings them to their knees. They're overwhelmed. Now, I don't want to belittle physical suffering, but aren't those who are spiritually faint-hearted, those who are weak in their faith, aren't they in far greater need of the support and the prayer of the elders of the church? Eternally speaking, they're, they're, not, they're, they're in the place of greater concern. Think about that person compared to, say, the faith-filled saint who's gotten news that, that their cancer will give them three weeks to live. And in that, they stand firm. They fix their eyes on the Lord. They are eagerly awaiting to see his face. That's a beautiful thing. 
So that's who I think this verse is about. Anyone who's spiritually weak, burdened, faltering in their faith, weary. You feel like your faith is being is, is just hanging from a thread. You're, you're discouraged. You're losing hope. Now, I said this would still apply to those who are physically sick, and it does, right? I mean, if someone is suffering physically, and because of that physical suffering, um, their heart is troubled and burdened, and they're, and they're having a hard time trusting the Lord through that, and then their faith is, is wavering, and they're weary, then, then absolutely this verse speaks directly about them. We, that, that's, that's a perfect fit for this. Having the elders gather around that person and, and anoint them with oil. And, and yes, pray for, for physical healing, for sure. We would certainly do that. That's absolutely appropriate. And just practically speaking, um, if someone is physically sick or suffering uh, and wants the elders to pray for them, absolutely. Like, don't hear me saying, like, don't bring us your physical problems. That's not what I'm saying. Not at all. Not by any means. Come. Come and we will pray for you. We will pray for God's healing for you physically. Um, But also know that while we ask for that physical healing, believing that God can and does heal, um, that our primary concern and the Lord's primary concern is is just not your temporal body. That's, That's not the number one thing. Think about it this way. Even the people whom Jesus healed, the people whom Jesus rose from the grave, where are they now? They're dead, right? Until Jesus returns at the resurrection, you will only ever have temporary relief from pain in this world. You will only ever have death delayed slightly. Even if it's 60 years in the grand scheme of things, what what is that? That's the best we get in this life physically. The Lord's priority and our priority in prayer will be the state of your soul. Your faith, your trust in Christ, your, your sanctification, your, your growth in Him in and through the trial. And so, is anyone among you weak, overwhelmed, burdened, struggling in their heart? Maybe it's because of physical suffering or illness. Maybe it's because of sin in your life. Maybe it's because of you're being persecuted and ostracized. Maybe it's your, your marriage or your children that are just heavy upon your heart. will leave you feeling spiritually spent. Maybe it's anxiety and worry about the things around you. Maybe you don't even know why. You just feel weary, spiritually unwell. Call the elders. Let us know. Please tell us. Um, Our job, our role as elders of the church is uh, to shepherd you. That's what the word pastor means. If you've been through some of the membership stuff here, um, I'm not the pastor. I'm one of four pastors, one of four shepherds. I happen to be the one who does the preaching, but we are all shepherds of the flock. I think that's how scripture clearly speaks of it. The job of the shepherd includes feeding and leading, guarding against the dangers of false teaching, um, but also bandaging the wounds and sometimes even carrying a weak and hurting sheep. And that's really hard to do if the sheep are hiding their weakness. 
If you're putting on a stiff upper lip and and pressing on as if everything is okay, covering up your wounds so that nobody sees them, uh, how can we care for you? Don't, Don't do it. Don't go it alone. There's no value in that. If you're spiritually wounded or or weak, um, you you need to get healthy. Don't stay there. Call the elders. Connect with myself or Corey or Grant or Arnold. Um, We would be thrilled to talk with you. North American church is so plagued by this tendency for us to put on this facade of health. Everything's great. How you doing today? Good. Wow. Every time? All the time? And underneath, we're just imploding and crumbling, dying a silent death in in isolation. It should not be that way. There's nothing more frustrating as an elder to hear of somebody who's just hit rock bottom or even walked away from the church or from the Lord and, and having that sense of hopelessness. Like, I didn't know. They didn't tell me. I actually even asked them last week, how can I pray for you? And all he told me is he had a sore knee and he's crumbling on the inside. Let us know. Just thinking through practically how this might play out. Uh, I think kind of one of two ways. Maybe, maybe you just call up one of the elders and say, hey, I'm just having a rough go right now. Can I talk with you? Yeah. Get together. Go for a, go for a walk. Connect. Talk. And, and maybe in that conversation, maybe you suggest or maybe he suggests, hey, can we gather the elders and, and pray about this? Or maybe you just know, I'm at the end of my rope. I... I I need the elders to gather. And so you just call one of us and say, hey, can I have the elders pray for me? Yes. Let's set a time. Let's figure it out. We'll do it for sure. And and here's what we're going to do. This is what this is going to look like at the middle of verse 14. Um, Let the elders pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. So prayer is the main thing there, even just grammatically. Um, Prayer is the main verb. Anointing is a, is a participle. It's subservient. Anointing is what you happen to be doing as you're praying. Um, verse 15 says it's the prayer of faith, not the oil that produces the, the restoration. And, and yet, nonetheless, this passage kind of tosses up another question for us. What's with the oil? Why the oil? What does it mean? What, what's its purpose? There are three kind of basic schools of thought on this. Um, for those who would take a strictly physical healing focus on this passage, often they would say um, oil is often used medicinally in the ancient world, and that's absolutely true. Uh, it was used to cure all kinds of things on a, on a flesh wound or what have you. Um, and, and so the, they would say that the, the admonition here is to pray and go to the doctor. Pray and take your antibiotics. Um, do both. And... and I agree with that. Uh, I don't think that's wrong. I I just don't think that's what it's being said here. Um, Others would focus on this more of the ceremonial aspect of anointing with oil. Um, Anointing with oil is often used throughout the Old Testament to set people aside to the Lord. So the priests were anointed with oil. Um, The kings were anointed with oil. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It was a symbol of them being kind of set aside uh, for the purpose of the Lord. And, and, and so they would say this anointing with oil here is to do just that, to set this person aside, to, to kind of draw God's special attention upon them and, 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 and consecrate them to the Lord. I can go along with that. That makes sense to me. I think that fits. Um, and, and so I, I'm actually going to hold to that 
partly, um, but I also think there's I also think there's good reason, legitimacy behind the, the third option as well, which is to point out that most of the time, not always, but most of the time, that kind of anointing happens in that kind of ceremonial sense. Uh, it's the Greek word "creo," from which we get Christ, the anointed one. And, uh, and here, that's not the word that James uses. And so that's a little bit odd. Um, the, the, the word James uses is alepho, and it, and it just means, in a, in a more casual sense, um, to apply oil, put oil on them. And, and you have to know, in their day and age, that was a very regular practice. They lived in a hot, dry, dusty climate, and, and they saw oil as refreshing and clean and rejuvenating. And, and so they would rub oil in their hair. Um, if you had a guest over for dinner and you just wanted to spoil them, um, you, would, you would wash their hands and feet and then you would bring out oil. And you would rub their dry, cracked hands and feet with, with oil. Think of, you know, maybe today like a good masseuse gives you the massage oil. And um, that's what this is. It's, it's, it's refreshing and, and uplifting. So Matthew 6, 17, Jesus tells his disciples, right? When you're fasting, don't disfigure your face and go out looking all, you know, bemoaning and broken. No, he says, wash your face and what? Anoint your head with oil. Put, on, put oil on. Go out looking healthy and strong like a regular day. Um, Psalm 23, I think, carries this similar meaning. That's one of the blessings of the Lord. You anoint my head with oil. You refresh me. And so it, this could be used in a very literal sense. They were to rub oil on that person, to bless them, to, to refresh them, to physically comfort them, and to send them out strengthened. And, and, and maybe that's used metaphorically a little bit too. How else can we help you? How else can we strengthen you and come alongside you? Maybe you need me to take your kids for a couple of days so that you can have a break. That, that, I think that would kind of fall in line here. What are some practical, physical ways that we can refresh you? Yeah, Josh is already lining his kids up to come over to my house for a few days. I can see it. <laughs> um, and so I'm not hard-pressed between the two of those. Um, I feel kind of comfortable saying I think there's both involved. I think we're consecrating them to the Lord, to his care, and, 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 and wanting to refresh them and strengthen them by our prayers and by any, any physical help that we can offer. Um, now, we don't use oil the same way today. Uh, and so if you come up, um, we're not going to pour WD-40 over your head. It's okay. Um, what we are going to do, I think, is continue to use oil as a symbol. Um, in that ceremonial way of setting you aside to the Lord and as a symbol, of, hey, we just want to bless you and refresh you. We're going to take a little drop of olive oil and put it on your forehead and, and, and just say, we want to bless you. We want to strengthen you. And, and at very least symbolically, by, by praying for you, we want to we see you restored and strengthened. And so, yeah, it has that, that symbolic meaning, calling for the Lord's special attention, strengthening the one in need. Uh, and then flowing out of that, um, verse 15, James says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, an elder's prayer is not a magical chant uh, it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't have this like A, B, and C function. Um, I think the assumption behind this is that you're coming to the elders for help. You're coming in weakness and faith. If you've sinned, you're coming in repentance. And the Lord will forgive that. 
Through this process of, of repentance and prayer and faith, the Lord will, will restore you. And so the first step in being a healthy church is, is this, is, is we need to get healthy. For those who are broken and weak and struggling in your faith, don't struggle alone. Don't press on, crumbling on the inside. Come to the elders. Let us pray for you. Let us encourage you. Let us build you up. Let us serve you in practical ways as a church. It doesn't even have to be like, you know, I can't quite go there. My life's not quite over yet. I haven't quite had the mental breakdown yet. That's okay. Um, I'm just feeling like I'm wrestling. Yeah. Let us pray for you. And so that's what the church is meant to be. This place where, where we come in honesty as we struggle in our own weakness laid bare. That, that's what elders are supposed to do. We are, we are not meant to be CEOs in the church. It's not a business position. This, it's not about you know, making all the important decisions. It's about shepherding. We're commissioned by God to be caretakers of your souls. That's our primary priority. So secondly then, if, if verses 13 to 15 are how do we get healthy, uh, verses 16 to 18... Uh, are about staying healthy. How do you stay healthy? James moves uh, a little more into kind of a maintenance perspective, right? The, the, the first passage addresses those who are overwhelmed, who are faltering, telling them, go, go to the elders for prayer. And then verse 16, he addresses the whole church. This is all of us in a more day-to-day kind of function. Let me, let me read 16 and 18 for us again. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So first of all, I think... um, This is assumed in the English. It's there, but it's really clear in the Greek. This is about all of us. Literally, it could be translated, Therefore, all of you confess your sins to one another, and all of you pray for one another. The elders are to lead in this, certainly praying for those who are in need. But but this should just be a regular practice among us. This is what we do as a people. This is who we are, praying for one another, confessing sin to one another. Because the prayer of a righteous man is, is, has great power as it's working. Prayer is powerful. It's meant to be this, this strong force at work in the church. And then he uses this strange example of Elijah. Why, why this example? Right? Like, why does he use the rain? Elijah prayed and rose the widow's daughter from the dead. Elijah prayed and called down fire from heaven. Like, that's cool. Use that example, James. No, he he uses this about the rain. Why? Well, I think it has to do with the context of that original story. 1 Kings 17 and 18. um, Ahab had just become king in Israel, and, uh, and he led them as God's people into rebellion. Specifically, he led them to the worship of the god Baal and into rebellion. And at that point, the Lord announced through Elijah that there would be a drought, neither rain nor dew. It was the Lord's hand of discipline, 
heavy upon Israel, sapping them of their strength, leaving them dry and, and parched. Reminds me of Psalm 51, as David says, my, my bones were withered. He's stricken with, with the weight of God's discipline for his disobedience. And what happens then after that three and a half years? Well, this is the story we all know. Elijah called the prophets of Baal to a showdown, right? The, the prophets of Baal came and they built their altar to their God. And then Elijah built his altar to, to Yahweh, to the Lord. And, and whichever God could light the fire under the altar would prove himself to be the one true God. And so the worshipers of Baal all gathered around in mass and they cried and yelled and screamed out to Baal and they whipped themselves and cut themselves till blood was everywhere trying to get Baal's attention and nothing happened. And I love this. Elijah builds his altar, throws on the wood, throws on the sacrifice, and then he says, bring up some water. And they start pouring gallons and gallons of water on the altar until there's pools of water around it. And then he doesn't put on a show. He doesn't do some extravagant thing. But Elijah, who is a man that has the same nature as we have, prayed this. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. And in that moment, fire came down from heaven so hot. Not only did it burn up the offering and the wood under it and the stones of the altar, it evaporated the water and burned the dust underneath. Any questions? Who is the real God? And as a result, Israel turns. Just as Elijah had prayed, they, they turned their hearts back to the Lord. The prophets of Baal are executed on the spot. And rain, precious, glorious rain begins to fall. You can imagine after three and a half years in, in Israel, in desert-like country, their crops don't grow without rain. They're hooped. Rain becomes, begins to fall and downpour. And you can just imagine the kids are out running and playing. People are out singing, dancing in the puddles. This is life again. And, and James specifically mentions, and the ground began to produce its fruit again. That's why he uses this example. That's what we want happening in our church all the time. All the time. Confession of sin, turning back to the Lord, that this downpour of God's refreshing grace might be poured out upon us, cleansing and life-giving, that we would bear fruit in our faith. When we hold silent, when we take our sin and keep it to ourselves and hide it, we find God's discipline, dryness, heaviness, weariness, brokenness. We need to confess our sin. Confess our sin to one another and pray for one another. Let me ask you this, and, and not as a theoretical question. Okay? You're, not, you're not off the hook to say, oh, good question. Hmm, that's interesting. No, you need to answer this. Oh, not out loud, you can answer for yourself, but you need to give an answer. When is the last time you confessed your sin to somebody? Someone else in the church. When's the last time you admitted, not in a general way, not just like, I'm a sinful person. Yeah, we get that. When's the last time you sat down eyeball to eyeball to someone and said, 
I have sinned in this way. I am wrestling with this sin in my heart that keeps rearing its ugly head. Do you pray for me? If you've got to reach back, if you're kind of racking your brain and thinking, yeah, when, I know what happened. At some point, probably, I must have. That's, that's not okay. That's not all right. I mean, unless you're Jesus, and let's just get this out of the way, you're not Jesus. You're a sinner. You continue to wrestle with sin in this life, in this world. Your pastor is a sinner. Your elders are sinners. And we're commanded to confess our sin to one another, to pray for one another. I've been to too many churches that feel like Israel in the middle of three and a half years of no no rain and no dew. It's dry. It's dusty. There's some little glimpses of green. There's a little bit of life coming up through the cracks here and there, but it's, it's frail and it's weak. Lives aren't being transformed. People aren't being saved. The joy of the gospel isn't, isn't vibrant and alive. Why? Why, the, why is that missing? Because people are living their lives in their own little silos, huddled up to themselves, more concerned about their pride and their reputation than they're concerned about killing sin and and pursuing sanctification. And the church becomes this, this place where we go to show our righteousness. Look how good a person I am. I go to church every week rather than coming to church as a needy sinner looking for grace and support and strength. As a result, it's, it's a dry, dusty, dead church. And it was, as, as a result, in, in each believer, we become dry. We struggle with sin, and, and there's a lifelessness and a lack of fruitfulness. Our, our joy in the Lord is, is withered and weak. How do you stay healthy? How do we stay healthy as a church? James says, Continue on in this authentic faith consistently, humbly before the Lord and before one another, confessing your sin like real life, speaking out loud, spelling out clearly, praying for one another. This is the reason that we have small groups the way that we have them. Okay, This is a big part of it. A good portion of our time as we gather as small groups um, is dedicated to sitting around together, men with men, women with women, to confess to one another, to bring our weakness, our sin, our failure, and say, brothers, pray for me. We need that. Now, that maybe seems terrifying to you, but I promise the result is life-giving, like, like the pouring down of rain for your soul after years of drought. That's why being a part of of a small group is actually a prerequisite for membership in our church. You can't be a member of our church without having some commitment to a small group. We know that has some complexities for some people. We'll work around that, but but this matters. Let me just be frank with you. If you're not interested in in actually pursuing Christ together in living real, genuine Christian lives of of confession and prayer and humility together in in meaningful, honest community with other believers, this isn't the church for you. Let's just get that out of the way. You're not going to last long here. It won't work. Now, to be clear, I'm not telling you to leave. I'm telling you to put down your pride, submit to community, 
There's a reason that Christ gathered us together as the church. And that's going to take sacrifice. First and foremost, it's going to take the sacrifice of your pride. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the one that can stand on my own and, and, and read the Bible by myself in my own little silo and just kind of go this own way on my own, standing tall without any help. That's not me. It's nobody. It's going to take humility to bring your sin, to bring your brokenness, to admit that we need each other. But there'll be sacrifice in other ways. Um, when I was in seminary full-time and, and working concrete three days a week, um, it was crazy. I was the busiest I have ever been. I, I often would get up at three in the morning to study before work. Um, we were, you want to talk about budget tight. I mean, there was no budget. Um, by God's grace, we made it through without student loans. Um, but man, we lived on beans and rice and potatoes. And I'm not even kidding. Um, we set aside in that season of life $70 a month. So I had $5 a month was my fun money that I could spend on whatever I wanted. And $70 a month was for babysitting. So that three evenings out of every month, we could go to small group together. Those were also our date nights. Um, Later, we would trade babysitting with friends. I'll watch your kids Tuesday, you watch our kids Wednesday. It was a huge sacrifice. And not once have I regretted that decision. Not even close. That was life for my soul. That was such a significant season of growth for me. Um, far more in small group than in seminary. And I don't have to tell you about the significance of the relationships we made there. That's when we met Josh and Sam. I remember sitting accountability time with Josh, pouring out of hearts the ugliness of sin and praying together, encouraging one another, challenging each other through the week. It's one of the big reasons that they're here now. So they moved back to Ontario, and I thought, we're going to find a way to get them back here. And as soon as we needed a worship leader, it was like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. Huge part of, of, of God's work in my life. If you're not plugged in, to, to, to a small group, if you're not committed, now's the time. Like, don't put it off. Don't avoid it. Don't, don't entertain that thought. I'll do that when life slows down a little bit. I have a secret for you. It doesn't slow down. That day won't come. Don't wait for it. Send me an email. Or maybe you've been in small group and you've been going consistently, but you don't just wear the cloth mask you keep your good Christian mask on too. And you've not taken that step of being vulnerable, of being honest, really sharing what you're wrestling with. Maybe you haven't even taken the time to look at what you're wrestling with, to identify the sin in your own heart. Stop. Stop hiding. We need this. This is a huge component to how we stay healthy as a church, as Christians confessing sin to one another, praying for one another that, that times of refreshing would come from the Lord. So, so get healthy, James says. Stay healthy. And the third one, I think, takes kind of one more step back. First was like the, the elders, and then it's everybody. And now um, he says, pursue the wayward. Pursue the wayward. Look at verses 19 and 20. Let me read these for us. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, 
and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a beautiful promise. Um, but it starts with a command. It starts with a command to all of us again. If anyone wanders from the truth, what does it mean to wander from the truth? Well, let's be reminded again the, the context of the book of James. I, I don't think... He's speaking strictly of kind of theological correctness. I don't think that's first on his mind. Probably applies. But, but I think his primary heart is toward those whose life is wandering from the truth. Right? Someone who's not living in accordance with the truth, with the gospel. We are to humbly and willingly confess our sins to one another. But what do you do when that stops? And you see a brother who, who's veering into sin, and, and instead of coming to the church for, for repentance, um, you see him pulling away from the church. Man, it is so easy just to say, he's made his decision, not my problem. I feel bad for him. I'll pray for him. No. No, James says you go after him. You go after him. You speak the truth in love to him. You call him to, to repentance, to restoration. Now that looks different in every situation, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, You're to, I, I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So, so some need to be admonished. Some need to rebuke. Some need strong words of correction. Others need to be encouraged. They just need that, that extra little bump, that little bit of, of, of being spurred on and built up. And others yet need help. They need support. They need a shoulder to, to lean on. They need backup. But in every situation is patience. Gentle, kind, loving patience. But take note of this. If a brother or sister around you is, is wandering, it's your job brother or sister in Christ, to bring them back. How often we, we use those words from Genesis 4, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. We are to be one another's keepers. And, and that's, like, that's all of us. None of us are exempt from, from either the, the action or the receiving. There are brothers here who have come to me and said, John, um, I saw this in your life, and that concerns me. I had missed it. I overlooked it. He was right. It's happened on multiple occasions. We need that. We see things in one another's lives that, that, that we don't see in our own. That's why Hebrews talks about being led away by the deceitfulness of sin. Because we deceive ourselves, and we need one another. This is us, church. You see someone wandering into sin, love them enough to call them back. Be humble, be gentle, be kind. Go in with the assumption you might be totally wrong about what you think you see. Verse 20 has this beautiful promise. If you can restore them, if you can bring back that wandering brother to the truth, back to the church, back to fellowship and restoration, you're saving his soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. 
So, yes, it is God who saves, not you. Yes, it is the Lord who will keep his own, who will not lose one of those whom the Father has given him. But he uses many tools to accomplish that end, right? He uses the preaching of the word. He uses the prayers of the saints. He uses the loving rebuke of a brother or sister. Seek after the wandering. Let no one walk away from the church without our hands clinging to their ankles. Brother, come back. Without them clearly hearing the call to repentance, to restoration, to return to grace. That's not easy. That's harder than you think it is. It is rarely welcomed by the one who is wandering. Um, It is not culturally appropriate. You very likely will hear, my sin is my problem. This is my life. It's not your business. This is between me and God. Who do you think you are? And none of that matters. This is our calling. This is what we're charged to do, to care for one another in this way. And on the flip side, there's no greater joy than to see one who was, who was hurting and, and wandering into sin be brought back into repentance, into fellowship. People come and go from churches so fluidly these days. Pop in here, pop in there, come a day, stay away, stay a few months, come again. Um, that's not what the church is meant to be. We're meant to be a family. We're meant to be this this like military brotherhood striving together day in and day out, not just Sunday mornings, um, but, but, but small groups. And in small groups, we're connecting and weaving our lives together and, and connecting with one another as we walk this road together. We strengthen each other. We hold each other accountable. We're, we're committed together. We should be so plugged into a body of believers that so, so committed and consistent to such a degree that that if we don't show up for a couple of weeks, people are asking questions. Hey, where you been? I missed you. I didn't see you in church. And that's strange that I didn't see you in church. Like we get so comfortable with like a once a month church attendance. I think it's crazy. Like this is to be our, our life together. Give yourself to the body of Christ. Give yourself to the church, the body in that degree. Um, and, and let me just say, expect that kind of accountability. Expect that the people here are going to love you enough to say, hey, where were you? We missed you. And then flip it and be on the watch. Be looking out for your brothers and sisters. You see someone having a a hard time or you you notice, boy, where's so-and-so been? I haven't seen them for like a few weeks. Call them up. Connect with them. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Just reach out. Hey, I, I haven't seen you for a while. Can you just... Can we, can we catch up? Can we grab a coffee? Can we go for a walk together? And then ask the hard questions. How you doing? How's your faith? I haven't seen you at church for a while. What's going on? Oh, well, I had COVID. Oh, okay. Glad you didn't come. Good to see you again. Glad you're back. Oh, well, I'm really wrestling with this sin. Or, or boy, I just, there's this division between me and another brother. Okay, let's solve that. Let me, let me help bring you back into the fold. This is how the church ought to operate. This is who we ought to be. So we're going to close in song this morning. But before we do that, um, I I want us to give us some just real clear forward steps. I think there's a lot of appropriate application here. Um, So, Josh, if you want to come forward and and prepare to lead us. um, But I want you to think about it in three categories. 
There's a lot of possible applications. Maybe, maybe you're looking around and thinking, boy, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while now that you mention it. I wonder where they're at. No idea what's going on. Maybe it's a cold. Um, maybe they're struggling. So, again, no shame in using your phone in church today. Um, pull your phone out. Send them a text right now. Hey, where you been? Hey, I missed you. Hey, how you doing? Hey, can we connect? And, and then pursue that. How's your walk with the Lord? Let that conversation go deeper than just, you know, how was work this week? Secondly, take a look inside your own heart. Are you staying healthy? Are you submitting to the, to the church, to the fellowship in that kind of close community? Do you have frequent opportunity to confess your sins to one another? Better yet, do you have people in your life who won't let you get away without doing that, who are going to look you in the eye and say, okay, let me have it. What's going on? And if not, you also need to pull out your phone. Send me an email. Okay, John, help me find a small group. Done. Awesome. Thrilled to do that. Or, hey, I'm ready to take the next step in in membership. I've been kind of floating half committed. I'm ready to move forward in that. Fantastic. Or maybe you are connected and, and you've been neglecting it. You've not been transparent. You're not coming and bearing your heart and, and being honest about where you're at. Send your small group leader an email. Hey, can you help me with this? I, I need to go a step deeper. And uh, your small group leader is going to help you with that. Next, next time there's small group, they're going to look at you and say, okay, how you doing? How you really doing? Don't just, don't just commit to it. Do it now. Like actually pull out your phone. Actually do it. Or maybe one last one. You feel like you're at the end of your rope. You know, John, I'm just beat down. I am exhausted. I'm faltering. I'm, I'm weak. I'm discouraged. Um, our elders are going to come up here. And during this next song, um, if you want us to anoint you with oil and pray for you, we would be so thrilled to do that, to stand with you, to encourage you, to build you up. And, and so, um, yeah, if, if, if a bunch of people come and you need to wait, please wait. Um, but do it. Don't, don't leave it. Um, we, we want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. We want to be doing this faithfully as a church. And so... Um, Josh and Marisa are going to lead us in worship, and, and uh, the elders are going to come forward. We'll have two on either side. Um, if you want to come for prayer, come for prayer. Um, and uh, if not, um, just ask that as, this, as the song ends, if you would just kind of make your way out quietly and leave it kind of quiet in here as we, as we pray up here. There's lots of room to fellowship at the back. Um, but would you stand together? Elders, why don't you guys come on up? Um, and uh, let me just encourage you to walk this out.